So if you were here last week, uh, you know that I was away because I was graduating from Gordon-Conwell. I finished seminary. Um, I appreciate a lot of you have... Um, a lot of you have come up and congratulated me, and I just I feel very loved, so thanks for that. Um, and as expected at my graduation, they did, in fact, give me a, di- a diploma. And uh, you can see it up there. I'm not sure if that's readable for all of you, but it says, The President and Faculty of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, by authority of the Board of Trustees, and in the exercise of powers granted by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, hereby confer upon Ryan Nathaniel Spooner, the degree of Master of Divinity with all the honors, rights, and privileges that degree appertaining. So I have two thoughts as I look at these words. One is that title, Master of Divinity, is a little ridiculous. (laughs) Uh, Mastering the divine is like bottling the ocean or reading the internet. It's impossible. Uh, None of us can, can master the divine in any sense. Uh, We can't master God in the sense of understanding him comprehensively because God is beyond our comprehension. That's something they actually reminded me a lot uh, about in seminary. We can apprehend things about God because God has chosen to speak to us in a way that we can understand. So it is possible to say things that are true of God, which is good because I would get up here and have absolutely nothing to say every week if that was true. Um, But we can't have comprehensive knowledge about God because there's always more to know. And that's good news, because heaven would be boring if that weren't true. It's one of the reasons that heaven will be enjoyable, is because we'll never run out of things to learn about God. But not only are we unable to master the divine in an intellectual sense, but we're also unable to master the divine in a controlling sense. Right? God's not like an animal that we can tame. He can't be put in a box or on a leash. He sets the rules, not the other way around. So we can't master the divine in that sense either. So no no matter how you look at it, master of divinity, that's a silly title. The second thought that I have as I look at this diploma is, what exactly are these honors, rights, and privileges? (laughs) That sounds exciting. You know, I'm thinking maybe some free Starbucks frappuccinos or being able to cut to the front of the line in amusement parks or reduced airfare. I know uh, Joe France and Chuck Redfern have already gotten this degree, so if you guys could let me know what I'm entitled to. I guess neither of them are here this week, but maybe they could fill me in. But anyway, I'm kidding. All, all joking aside, I'm, I'm very thankful for my time at Gordon-Conwell and for this degree, uh, because even if I haven't actually mastered the divine, I do know a lot more about him uh, than before I went to school. And even if this degree never gets me free frappuccinos, Uh, it does open up exciting ministry opportunities. So I am very grateful. But as grateful as I am, I also want to acknowledge that before I went to seminary, there was already a completeness to what I had through my faith in Christ. Uh, In other words, this degree was not a necessary thing. It's significant. It matters. It represents three and a half years of hard work and equipping But what I needed most, I already had in Christ before I went to seminary. And the reason I bring that up is because this week, the passage that we're looking at is all about how Christ is enough. It's all about how in him we lack nothing. We're complete, we're full, 
whether we have a master of divinity or not. So, as promised, we're continuing our series in Colossians today. This is Colossians, part 2. And uh, we're starting in chapter 2, verse 9. So, if you want to follow along in your Bible, Colossians, chapter 2, verse 9. Now, before we, we read this, just a quick reminder of the context. Remember, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Colossae because they had been drifting from the truth. They had heard the gospel message. They had received it a while ago. But since then, they had just been slowly moving away from the simple truth that they had received. And this letter was written to help correct that drift by reminding them of the original message. So, starting in chapter 2, verse 9... Uh, Before we get into this, I want to pray, because this is actually a long scripture passage, and I know I'm speaking for myself, I'm not going to speak for all of you, but I'm speaking for myself. When I read a long section of scripture in church, my mind just goes after the first two sentences, it just floats off somewhere else. So I want to pray for focus, because I think we all need it. So, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the chance to look at it together. We pray, God, that you would give us uh, the capacity to take these words seriously, um, that you would grant us understanding as we read them, that we would see them for the life-giving source of truth that they are. And uh, we just pray that you would open them to us, God. Help us to focus on them, to learn from them, and uh, to grow and be transformed by them. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here we go. Starting in verse 9. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature. Not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use, because they're based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So that's a pretty big chunk of scripture there. And I thought it would be helpful to break it down by approaching it in two parts, uh, which I'm going to call the fullness 
and the emptiness. So in the early part of what we just read, Paul talks about the fullness that we have in Christ. And he describes what that fullness is. And he says that because we have this fullness, this completeness, there are certain ideas that ought to be rejected. And I'm going to call those ideas the emptiness. And so uh, Paul first talks about the fullness and then the emptiness. And today I'm going to do the reverse. I'm going to start by talking about the emptiness and then talk about the fullness. So what were the empty ideas that had infiltrated the Colossian church? Well, I see at least three. There might be more, but I see three that stand out. And I think they've got some modern-day counterparts. So we're going to talk a little about each of them. And the first one that stands out is legalism. Now remember, verse 20 said, Since you died to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. The people in the Colossian church had added a bunch of rules to their worship. And these rules were completely unnecessary. Uh, there were rules about what they could and couldn't eat and touch and that sort of thing. And it's important for us to recognize, I want to put a little qualifier here, the problem with these rules, it wasn't that they, that they were rules. The problem is that they weren't rules from God. Remember, he's, Paul says in verse 22, these rules are all destined to perish with use. Why? Because they're based on human commands and teachings. And the reason I point this out is uh, because I've noticed a little bit of a trend in uh, contemporary Christianity uh, where in some churches, whenever somebody tries to insist on any standard of behavior, there will always be somebody who goes, oh, well, that sounds legalistic to me. You know, or, you really shouldn't get drunk. Oh, no, you know, come on, don't be legalistic. You know, you shouldn't have sex outside of marriage. Oh, come on, that's legalistic. But following the rules that God has given us, that's not legalistic. I mean, if that were true, then the only real sin would be being obedient to God. And that's kooky talk. Um, so, the sin of legalism is the sin of adding human laws and regulations to what God has given us. Not the sin of following rules, period. But, that said, true legalism is sin. And it was a real problem in Colossae. Now, you might wonder, as I often have, why in the world would people create extra rules to follow? I mean, honestly, what, what could possibly be the appeal of legalism? Why would we have a tendency to put demands on ourselves that God hasn't put on himself? It's like a kid who has to go to bed at 8 p.m., but then he insists on being in bed at 7. I don't know any kids like that. It's weird. Well, we as human beings are complicated creatures, and I think there are multiple factors that push us toward the sin of legalism. But if I had to identify, okay, what are the roots of this? Why, why do we get pulled toward this? I can think of two things. So one is that we have a desire to feel like we're in control. And particular, particularly, a desire to feel like we're in control of God. We want to feel like God is somehow indebted to us. And that he owes us. And so creating a lot of rules and then following them can help to create that feeling. This feeling that he's indebted to us. But God is not indebted to us. We're indebted to him. We don't save ourselves, he saves us. And even if it offends our pride to admit that, it's actually really good news. 
And then second, I would say another source of legalism is a desire to keep God at a distance. Um, So, yeah, the way I would describe this is we want to feel like God and I are on good terms, right? But often we don't want to actually feel like we're close to God. We kind of want God to be over there, and we're over here, and maybe occasionally we make eye contact and we wave and God gives us a thumbs up. And, but we don't actually want to be close to God. And for those of us who feel that way, legalism is a way of creating the sense that God and I are on good terms without actually being in close relationship with Him. But legalism doesn't work because what God really wants from us is real, honest, loving relationship. And legalism can't accomplish that. Legalism actually keeps us from that because legalism tries to substitute rules for intimacy. Here's an analogy that I thought of uh, for what legalism in our relationship with God is like. Legalism is like a husband who isn't comfortable being emotionally vulnerable. So he skips date night with his wife and instead stays home and alphabetizes the contents of the fridge. And then his wife comes home, disappointed that he didn't show up at the restaurant, but when she gets home, he's not even there. Who knows where he is? Uh, But he's put a sticky note on the fridge, and he says, I alphabetized it. I'm sure you're happy. And she says to herself, why would anyone want the fridge alphabetized? That's legalism. Substituting pointless laws and regulations for real relationship with God. And it is an empty way to live. So a second empty idea that had infiltrated the Colossian church was asceticism. Asceticism. Now I realize that might be a new word for some of you. Uh, Asceticism is very closely related to legalism like legalism's nasty little brother. And we can see the evidence of it in verse 23, uh, where it says, Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. What asceticism is, is it is the belief that the way to achieve spiritual fullness is by treating yourself harshly. Uh, by beating yourself up, either metaphorically or literally. It's the idea that if something feels good, it's probably supposed to be avoided. And if something feels bad, it's probably good for you. When I was in seminary, I took a church history class where we learned about some pretty extreme ascetics from history. And uh, one of the most outrageous cases I remember hearing about was a guy named Simeon. And that's who's depicted in that picture there. Simeon lived in the 5th century A.D. Uh, He's now regarded as a saint by the Catholic Church. And he spent 47 years living on top of a platform on a pillar. And uh, he spent most of that time either praying in a position that most of us would consider very uncomfortable or preaching. 47 years. And all he ate during that time were small little pieces of bread and goat's milk that neighborhood kids would bring up to him. 
they climb up the pillar and they hand it to him. Now, I doubt anyone was as extreme as Simeon in the Colossian church, but there were people who believed that the way to achieve spiritual fullness was by treating their bodies harshly. And Paul speaks out against that mentality. Now, don't get me wrong. There's definitely a place for discipline in following Christ. I don't want to go so far as to say Simeon's not part of the kingdom. I wouldn't recommend his approach. But, um, you know, sometimes we do have to do things that we don't want to do, things that are uncomfortable. Sometimes God does call us to deny ourselves things that we want. But I think it's important for us to recognize that Christ is not anti-pleasure. You know, he's not against food and fun and laughter. And let's not forget, when Christ walked the earth, he went to dinner parties. He turned water into wine. He actually got criticized by the Pharisees for not being an ascetic. Or at least his followers did. They thought that he was indulgent. So there's no need for us to think of Christ as anti-pleasure or pro-pain. What God is, is pro-love. And love sometimes leads us to feel pain, right? And sometimes it leads us to feel pleasure. But love never seeks pain just for the purpose of feeling pain. That's called masochism. It's it's no good. Love never uh, seeks pain for the purpose of being more spiritual, whatever that means. Love doesn't reject what feels good just because it feels good. Love enjoys what is good and also suffers to overcome what's evil. Now, I don't think anyone here at St. Paul's thinks it would be a good idea to live the next 50 50 years on a pillar. I doubt that there's any threat of that. Uh, But I do think we need to be on guard against much more subtle forms of asceticism. For example, this is one that I've, I've experienced in my own life. Not in exactly this form, but... Um, have you ever thought, whatever I don't want to do with my life must be what God wants me to do? Like, maybe you have no interest at all in doing overseas missions. And so you assume that because you don't want to do overseas missions, that must be what God wants you to do. That's the ascetic mindset. Now the truth is, yeah, God might call you to do something you don't want to do. That definitely happens. Think of Moses, right? Moses didn't want to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. He didn't want to confront Pharaoh, but God called him anyway. Uh, Similarly, I was talking to a pastor recently who told me that when God first called him to ministry, he said, please send somebody else. So yeah, that happens sometimes. Sometimes God calls us to do things we don't want to do. But here's what I want us to recognize. In each of those cases, both with Moses and with that pastor, the lack of desire was not the evidence of the calling. I'll say that again. The lack of desire was not the evidence of the calling. Moses didn't say, you know, I have no desire to be a spiritual leader to these people. Therefore, God must be calling me to be one. No, the evidence wasn't the lack of the desire. The evidence was that God showed up in a burning bush and talked to him, told him what he was supposed to do. You know, and similarly, the pastor I talked to this week He didn't have as dramatic of a story as Moses, but like Moses, he also had a very specific experience, several specific experiences, where he was convinced that God was calling him. 
So like Moses, the evidence of God's calling in his life was not that he didn't desire to do that calling, but it was God's intervention that was the evidence. So don't fall victim to the mindset that God's calling on your life is just whatever it is you don't want to do. That's the aesthetic mindset. It's empty and it's false. The truth is that most of the time, when God gives us a calling, he usually gives us the corresponding desire to fulfill that calling. I mean, most of the missionaries I've known, they've wanted to be missionaries. Maybe they've struggled some with that calling, but deep in their hearts, they have a longing for that. And most of the pastors I've known have wanted to become pastors because they have a heart for God and they have a heart for his people. So that's the way it usually works. And in those cases where he does call us to do something that we don't want to do, he doesn't call us by giving us a disdain for the calling. That's not the way it works. He calls us by speaking to us. He makes it clear in other ways. So avoid the aesthetic mindset. It's not healthy because what the aesthetic mindset really does is it feeds you a lie which just says God is opposed to your joy. But he's not. He loves us. And if we want the strength to follow him wherever he leads, we need to start with that foundational belief that he is for us, not against us. Okay, finally, the third empty idea that had infiltrated the Colossian church was the pursuit of secret knowledge. The pursuit of secret knowledge. Verse 18 says... Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. There were people in the Colossian church who were preoccupied with angels and visions. Notice that line. He goes into great detail about what he has seen. What Paul's talking about there, which is clear in the original language, is people in the church who claim to have seen special things. Uh, In other words, people who claim to have these very unique visions from God or maybe from these angels that they have been worshiping and who emphasize these visions rather than the gospel message. And the major problem with these people is that they seem to think that the original message that they had been given about Christ wasn't really enough. They thought that in order to achieve real maturity, real enlightenment, real power... They needed this secret knowledge that came through these visions. And I think we're still susceptible to this kind of thinking today. Because secret knowledge is exciting. You know, it's interesting. Everybody likes a good conspiracy theory, you know? We like to think that we're in the know about something that most people aren't. Who here has seen uh, that movie, A Christmas Story, about Ralphie who wants the BB gun? A few people? Okay, I love that movie. Well, if you've seen that, you know, it takes place, I think it's in the 30s, so it's an older movie. But uh, there's a part in the movie where Ralphie is obsessed with getting this decoder ring so that he can find out what the secret message is at the end of the Little Orphan Annie radio program. And that's a great illustration of that longing for secret knowledge. Of course, if you remember the movie, what happens to poor Ralphie is that when he finally gets that decoder ring and manages to decode the secret message, it turns out it's just a commercial for Ovaltine. And he's really upset. He's very disappointed. And I think that our pursuit of secret knowledge is usually similarly disappointing. Uh, We end up with information that's either false or 
manipulative or just not particularly relevant to our lives. But like Ralphie, we're drawn to secret knowledge. We're curious. We want to feel like we're in the know in a way that nobody else is. And because of that, we can be drawn to teachers or authors who claim to have this special knowledge that nobody else has. But what Paul wanted the Colossians to realize is that the most important knowledge about God and his plan for our lives had already been delivered. It was already there. And what that means for us, I think, is that you know, regardless of what we believe about God giving new revelation or, or a prophecy today, we need to remember, remember that the most important knowledge about God is available to all of us. Not some of us, all of us. It's not the special privilege of a few spiritual giants, especially not the special privilege of a few legalistic, ascetic spiritual giants. Instead, the most important knowledge has already been revealed through Jesus. We don't have to go through angels or through spiritual gurus to get that knowledge, that, the knowledge that really matters. We've already got it. Okay, so now that we've talked about the empty ideas that had infiltrated the Colossian church, let's look at the fullness that Paul reminds them of. Going back to verse 9, he says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. What Paul's saying there is that they don't need legalism, they don't need asceticism, they don't need secret knowledge. Everything they need for a full spiritual life has already been given to them through Christ. And what they need for that full spiritual life can be condensed down to two things. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a lot more to learn than this, but I'm saying that the heart of the fullness of the gospel is expressed in these two things. So, and they are, one, freedom from the sinful nature, and two, forgiveness of sins. Freedom from the sinful nature and forgiveness of sins. So let's talk a little bit about that first one. Freedom from the sinful nature. Paul says in verses 11 and 12, In Christ you were also circumcised, in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, there's a lot that we could talk about in those two verses. We could talk about the sign of circumcision in the Old Testament or about the role of baptism. There's a lot of deep stuff that's being referenced there. But what I want us to focus on is the real point that Paul is making here, which is that in Christ, our sinful, na- our sinful nature is removed. That's the reason he's talking about circumcision and baptism, is that they're metaphors that help to capture this idea that the sinful nature has been taken away. So what Paul is emphasizing is that through Christ, we have power not to be enslaved by sin. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't still struggle. It doesn't mean that we don't face temptation every day. It doesn't mean that we're going to live perfectly. But what it means is that through Christ, we have resources to avoid our sinful impulses. We have power to overcome temptation. That's part of the fullness 
that we have been given. So we don't just have to be slaves to every inclination that we have. We've got power to overcome. And then the second thing we've been given in Christ, thank God, is forgiveness of sins. Verses 13 through 14 say, God forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. In other words, because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, God does not hold our sin against us. The charges against us have been dropped. We're forgiven. In Christ, there is no condemnation. And notice that glorious little word in the beginning of verse 13. All. All. God forgave all of our sins. Not just the little ones that we're not embarrassed to share with each other. You know, not just the ones that we did before we became Christians. Not just the ones in our past, but also the ones in our future. All of them. All. Canceled. Paid for. Forgiven. So again, what's the fullness that we have been given in Christ? We have been given freedom from the sinful nature and the forgiveness of our sins. And one way to put this is power to overcome sin and forgiveness for when we haven't. Power to overcome sin and forgiveness for when we haven't. That's, that's the simple gospel. That's the good news. That is the pure, undiluted message that Paul was trying to preserve in Colossae, and that's the message we need to hold on to today. So, I have a little confession for you guys. I've noticed that when I prepare a message, this is, I think, week 10 that I've had to prepare a message here, uh, I've noticed that pretty much every time when I prepare one, I have this desire inside to say something new. This desire to say something that no one's ever heard before. I want to say something that's fresh and exciting. It's going to blow people's minds. That's what I want to do, you know? But I realize that that desire isn't necessarily a good thing. Because when you read Colossians and other places in the New Testament, Paul isn't trying to say anything new most of the time. He's just trying to remind them of that simple gospel that they first heard. And he's trying to keep them from getting distracted by things that complicate that message. You know, things like legalism and asceticism and the pursuit of esoteric secret knowledge. And I have to imagine that there were people in the Colossian church, who, not that I'm saying anyone here is like this, but I have to imagine that there were people in the Colossian church who heard him emphasize the simple gospel, this idea of freedom from the sinful nature and forgiveness of sins, and they said, yeah, yeah, Paul. I mean, we've heard that a million times. That's old news. Do you have anything, do you have anything fresh? Anything new, anything new for us? But even if we've heard it a million times, we have to realize this is the fullness. This is the good news. For many of us, it may not be novel, but it's what we need. So let's remember it. Let's celebrate it. Let's live it. Let's share it. And let's not get distracted by empty ideas that would try to pull us from it. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that rejoices in the simple gospel, in the truth that you have set us free from sin. You've given us power to overcome it, and you've given us forgiveness for when we've fallen. 
God, we thank you that there is a fullness to that. There's a completeness to that. We thank you that we can celebrate that and rejoice in that, Lord. And we do pray, God, that you would give us wisdom and discernment wherever um, there may be forces that try to pull us away from that simple truth, God. We give you thanks, Lord. We do rejoice in the simple gospel. We thank you for the fullness you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.